Luminance Insights, webinar on the impact of COVID-19 upon the legal profession with keynote speaker, Robert Webb, QC. So let me now formally welcome you all to the next installment of our Thought Leadership webinar series. Uh, I wanna thank you all for sharing a bit of your day today. My name is Jason Brennan. I am president of the Americas for Luminance and I will be leading the discussion today. I'm quite honored uh, to be speaking with our chairman, uh, Robert Webb QC. Um, Rob is the highlight of today. He's a, enjoyed an extremely successful career within the legal industry across a multiple multitude <laughs> of functions. And we're gonna try to take advantage of that today as we talk, uh, take advantage of Rob's experience as we talk through how the current pandemic is influencing uh, and really accelerating substantive changes across the legal profession and how lawyers perform their jobs day to day. So I thought we would start with just a little uh, high level background on Luminance for those of you who may be less familiar with us. Uh, and uh, you know, Luminance is proud to be the leading artificial intelligence platform for the legal profession. At a high level, what Luminance does is we help legal professionals review and analyze documents at faster speeds and with greater confidence than traditional methods. The fundamental technology behind Luminance is our legal inference transformation engine, um, Light, And you know, this was built from a blend of unsupervised and supervised machine learning and pattern recognition techniques developed at the University of Cambridge. What Light enables uh, Luminance to do is to not only form an understanding of documents that come into the system, but more importantly, to augment the knowledge uh, and learning by the interaction between legal professionals and the matter at hand. Luminance uses that technology to automatically perform tasks such as document clustering, filtering, uh, automated data extraction, question uh, <laughs> of similar paragraphs or data points, and uh, the automatic detection of differences or anomalies across the document set. And Luminance is able to do this across a wide range of both corporate and litigation use cases uh, to support lawyers. Today, Luminance is used by more than 225 organizations in more than 50, across more than 50 countries. That list includes 20% of the top 100 global law firms, all of the big four, and a growing list of global corporations. If you do have any interest in learning more, please uh, drop us a note during the session or visit our website where you can also request additional information and we'll have someone follow up with you shortly. And so now I wanted to move to the main event. Uh, I am extremely honored to introduce our guest speaker today. Robert Webb QC is currently chairman of Dark Chase Limited, chairman of Luminance, as well as a senior advisor at Brunswick LLP. He is a door tenant of Brickport Chambers. Until 1998, Rob was a practicing barrister, a recorder, and head of chambers at <laughs> London. His fields of practice were commercial law, aviation law, and mass disaster litigation. From 1998 to 2009, Rob was general counsel of British Airways. Uh, he then later served as general counsel of Rolls-Royce from 2012 to 2016. Rob is also a past chairman of BBC Worldwide and of Autonomy, a former senior independent director of the London Stock Exchange, former director of Holdingham Group, and a former director of Argent Limited and of Air Mauritius. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Robert Webb QC and thank him for joining us today. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thanks, Jason. Good to hear from you. I hate hearing my CV read out. It all sounds so long ago, doesn't it? There's a, there's a few, there's a few current things. 
Yeah. Because it's quite impressive and uh, really highlights, Rob, what we're looking to take advantage of today, which is your experience across a wide range of roles in, in different organizations. So, Rob, looking at the pandemic um, goes without saying that a lot has changed in the world over the past few months. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's odd that there seems to be this uh, sense of acceptance that things are going to change, not just now, but likely for a much longer period of time, if not forever. So let's look at the legal industry specifically. How impactful, Rob, do you think COVID-19 has been on the industry as a whole? Let's, uh, let's split it into short term and medium or long term. Because I think in the short term, there's a sort of pause. We've all gone home and we're all learning the new tech and we're all learning the new ways of working. And we're all trying to, you know, a lot of conversations I have always begin with people saying, hey, can you hear me? No, I can't hear you. No, can you see me? No, I can see you, but I can't hear you. I think we'll get through that stage quite quickly. Hopefully, anyway, I'm looking forward to it. It's also been a terrific boost to the young Turks in the firm who've been saying to the older partners for years, look, get us some decent tech kit, get us some decent video, get us some decent stuff. And the guys are now saying, yeah, all right, we see, we'll buy it. So the budgets for this stuff have increased and the availability of it has increased. I think that's a good thing in the short term. And it's also giving us cause to reflect immediately on what is the purpose of a big office. I mean, Jeff Staley, the CEO of Barclays said, uh, it may be that the days of having 7,000 people in a building are over. And if that's right, it, it calls into question the future of the city. Um, what is the office for? Uh, why do you have 7,000 people in a building? Does it become a social function? Does it become a dating function? Is it a work function? Is it because people enjoy commuting? What is it that's got, what's the glue that's gonna stick the city back together if that happens? So I think those are the sort of short-term things we're thinking of. But you've got to, I mean, I think the best parallel is the tsunami. Because as you know, if you're on a beach, uh, the first sign of a tsunami is when the ocean disappears. Uh, you suddenly look down and it gets sucked back and sucked away. And then it comes back in with a massive sort of sweep and drowns a lot of people. And I think we're at the tsunami stage where we're standing on the, on the beach and the ocean's disappeared. Uh, and we're waiting for a tsunami to come back. And we're not quite sure what form it'll take. Medium term, I think you have to accept that the rule of law matters. Business needs clear and firm rules to work by. It's one of the reasons England's such a popular destination, not just for litigation, but for business in generally. The social order requires a criminal justice system and a social justice system. We're not going to come out of this with everybody just saying, yes, Boris, there's going to be the same level of um, antisocial activity as there is now. So we'll need that system. Houses will still need to be bought and sold. Estates will still need to be administered. Uh, so the law is going to return. And the three Ds, death, disease and debt, haven't gone away. And in fact, um, they're more present than they were. So it's going to return. What's How's it going to return? I think the current trendy phrase isn't um, a V-shape or a U-shape or an L-shape. I think it's borrowing the Nike slogan and it's going to come back as a swoosh shape, small tick down and then a big uptick uh, like the Nike slogan itself. So um, 
Where's that boom going to come from? I guess there are one or two lawyers listening to this and they will remember the coronation cases, which you're taught in your first term at legal university. In 1902, King Edward VII was going to marry Queen Alexandra on the 29th of June. And a fellow called Mr. Henry hired a flat at 56 Pall Mall, which is just outside the Luminance offices, so that he could see the procession. The king was ill, he got appendicitis, so the coronation was postponed. And Mr. Krell, who leased him the flat, uh, sued for the money, saying, where's my money? And uh, Mr. Henry said, well, I can't see the procession, so I'm not paying. And that was the root of the doctrine of frustration of contract in England. And it's still uh, one of the root causes. So we're going to have seen thousands of contracts frustrated. And the litigation that's going to surround them is going to keep us going for a generation. So although the spelling is the same, if you'll forgive the pun, this corona is going to frustrate thousands more contracts than the coronation ever did. So there's going to be a boom. Contract litigation, employ employment litigation. Who was furloughed? Who wasn't paid? Who was furloughed? Who missed their bonus? Who was unfairly selected for this redundancy? Whenever you get this sort of disruption in the workplace, you get those claims. And M&A, obviously, um, we call it M&A, but those of you who've practiced in this field will know that there's no such thing as an M. It's only an A. Um, the strong in the end always take over the weak. And we're going to see that coming big time. Um, you get it whenever you get winch years of this kind. So, although the big five solicitors may have deferred their drawings for this quarter, I don't think that anybody will be repossessing their houses very soon. Does well, that, um, yeah. that, that, that is a lot for, for my brain, at least, to, to pull in. I mean, I appreciate the thoughts. You covered a lot there. So, so that's at a high level. Um, I think some interesting things that came up for me as you were going through that list, Rob, is that the legal industry uh, is is very broad, right? Um, a lot of different groups within the legal industry. You've got in-house lawyers, you've got uh, lawyers at firms, you've got judges and court systems. Um, going back to your bio that you were very modest about, you've had the opportunity to work across you know many different roles throughout your legal career. How do you see some of those trends impacting those groups either similarly in similar or different ways uh, at, a, at a more micro level. Well, let's start with the criminal law. It's perhaps not directly relevant to what this audience probably is, but it's still the most necessary and the most useful part of the legal profession. And of course, as a result of that, the least well paid. Um, the courts still have to function, no criminal justice system, and you've got no society. So how is it going to affect that? Jury trials probably still have to be conducted in person, partly because you can only assess credibility in person. I look at you now and I can see a lot about you, but I can't assess what used to be called the cut of your jib. And it's much more difficult to tell if you're lying to me than if you're standing in front of me. So I think they'll need it for that. Similarly, you need an in-person thing if you're going to send someone to prison. I mean, when I was sitting as a recorder, the first time I sent somebody to prison for five years, I said, you've done this, that and the other, and you've let society down, and you've let your parents down and so on. You'll go to prison for five years. And then for some reason, I heard myself say, if that's all right. Um, and 
you're not looking for the consent from the defendant in those circumstances. You're looking to set to exercise authority. So you can't send somebody to prison by Zoom in case you say, I'll give you five years, and they say, well, I'm not going. So you need all that sort of uh, stuff in place. Judges can do a lot remotely, but similarly, it's quite difficult to get credibility across in this sort of environment. And also the law needs some sort of majesty in order to command obedience. And majesty doesn't come across on tech because it's a great leveler. Everybody is equal. So I think that personal stuff will continue. And in fact, they're now talking, what, opening what they call Nightingale Courts after the hospitals in order to push through a lot of trials very quickly to get rid of the back the backlog and the Nightingale hospitals weren't particularly used, but I think the Nightingale courts will be. Um, on the other hand, with M&A and commercial transactions, nearly everything can be done remotely. I mean, it's just um, it, it's just made for it, which is why it's already being used in discovery and in most of the um, well, most of the heavy document processing tasks are already done. I mean, that's why Slaughter and May are founder partners of Luminance, and we're very pleased to have them. But they will use um, they will use automatic processing whenever. And um, we're reaching a tipping point, I think, where it's it'll be negligent not to use tech. Um, if you have millions of documents, human beings can only sample them, whereas tech can read them all. So when I was practicing at the bar, you used to think of England as the place for, to bring proceedings. Suddenly it became negligent not to consider, shouldn't we try this case in America? Shouldn't we do this? Shouldn't we do the other? I think it's now coming to a stage where if you don't get a, doc, a, a machine to read the documents for you, you run the risk of missing something. So I think it'll become standard practice. The other reason I think it will is that we now have to transmit data and turn it into information. In the old days, that wasn't such a vivid distinction as it is now. But now when you see data, you don't translate it into information which is useful to the transaction without the help of heavy sampling or of a machine. So it's effectively the machine which can recognize the patterns in the data in a way that a human being, being able only to sample, finds it more difficult. And then, Going from there to the in-house legal firms, who I think are the unsung heroes of the legal profession. I mean, the banks and the oil companies and so on have thousands of lawyers in-house. They're big firms within commercial companies. They are absolutely used to tech because all their colleagues are using it. And they're sort of, they have dinosaur images anyway, which they're very anxious to shed. They'll expect the private firms to be using cost-saving tech. It'll come into the billing. Well, how did you do this? Oh, well, we got Miss Thing to read all the documents or Mr. Thing. No, you shouldn't have done that. And one of the old measures of status in a solicitor's firm was the partner-assistant ratio. I'm so busy and so successful, I have four assistants. That's long gone as a measure of status. So, for example, on my desk here in Scotland, I have access to all the world's information within a metre of where I'm sitting. I don't even have to stand up and get it. And that's one of the reasons I think that smaller firms are hoovering up luminance like there's no tomorrow, because it's like a peacock's tail. It can make small look very big uh, because if it has access to this machinery, then it's as good as somebody with much more firepower. So it's appealing to the big, it's appealing to the small, 
And then if you look at the accountants firms, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction, the big four accounting firms are all, I think, using luminance. So that's no coincidence. So I think the moment of the marriage ceremony has come. I think luminance is now pivoting to the legal profession because we understand much more who they are, what they want, what they need from us. And they're pivoting to us because they begin to understand that we're real. Let me shift gears a little bit, Rob. Um, the legal profession, we're not known uh, for moving uh, extremely quickly. Uh, tends to be a conservative profession by uh, reputation. Let's talk about some of these changes that you've talked about and the, and the pandemic specifically. So uh, I think the word of the year might be lockdown, right? We've all been experiencing uh, a lockdown, remote working. How much do you think that's influenced the acceleration of the use of tech uh, and the use of electronic tools? Absolutely, hugely. All sorts of people who didn't feel comfortable with it before are comfortable with it now. They've all got the tools and the equipment to work remotely. And you can't say you haven't because that just makes you look like a dinosaur. It's like saying, well, I don't use computers. So that, that acceleration has taken place. And I think it's been matched by the pivot from tech, which is that um, this sort of tech is no longer rules-based. You don't give it instructions and ask it to find something and make it a surrogate human. You ask it to read the document and show you what are the patterns it contains. So once you can read that, which is known as unstructured data, then it's a great deal more useful than it was in the old days when some of these firms could only read structured data or rules-based data or something like that. So I think we're, I think we're there. Um, but Jason, you're much better on describing the innovations in the product than I am, because um, you know the content, whereas I tend to do a bit of hand-waving at this stage. So do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you that uh, the, the um, remote working uh, has, has certainly influenced. But one of the unique things that I have come across is I've seen an increase uh, in interest in kind of the workflow platforms that can provide provide workflow tools and assistance. Um, you know, this is something that's always been a part of the Luminance platform, having workflow features. But really, at the time, it was because we wanted to encourage lawyers uh, to work within the platform because we knew that being closer to the documents was important, right? The legal profession is one where context and subtle nuances are very important. So we were looking to move beyond some of the legacy tools uh, that were more output-based um, and have lawyers work within the platform itself. But with the modern uh, requirements, remote working, the pandemic, lockdown, uh, we've seen a surge in interest across these specific functions. Um, you know, we're hearing from our clients where uh, attorneys overseeing uh, specific corporate projects might be spending upwards of 50% of their time on administrative tasks, especially in the wake of, uh, of this pandemic. And where they, what they've really been attracted to is administrative features such as automated task assignments, uh, collaboration features where you can share notes uh, across groups and across locations. And certainly, last but not least, review, uh, reviewer metrics where at this time where you're trying to manage people across locations, you can really check in and understand what productivity looks like, what people are doing, avoid multiple people performing the same tasks. So, 
we've seen, uh, you know, we've really created a product with one idea in mind, but as time has gone in, we've seen a surge in interest, especially in the uh, pandemic environment. And things like clustering and anomaly detection and all that stuff, which we did before, are they still attracting people? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, th then I'll shift a little bit and we can look at that as we look at, um, so looking beyond the short-term necessity to use tech, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this first, but people are here to listen to you, Rob, so I'll ask the question first to you. How do you think the, uh, some of the trends we've just talked about with lockdown and acceleration has uh, accelerated the recognition of legal professionals to understand the need uh, to be able to use tech more effectively and efficiently than they have in the past. I think they all understand it. Mm -hmm. I think the big make them real firms, it's, they've realized that it makes them more efficient. And I think the small firms have realized that it gives them almost endless power, as I said before. It is seen as and is a cost saver. It is just much cheaper as well as much faster. It's also much more trustworthy because it reads everything. It doesn't take any power away from the human being. The human be being can still sample if he or she wants to. It can still make the judgments, but it provides the sort of thing that a really competent junior would do if you were a barrister fighting a case. You'd say to your junior, well, is there anything in bundle B? And he or she would say, well, yes or no, you needn't read that. And to have a machine underlying that as well, I think gives you added confidence. Because sometimes people say, well, how do you trust the machine? The answer is you don't have to trust it. You're in charge of it. It's your machine. Um, but it's you trust the speedometer in your car. Uh, mm. And it's just another one of those. So. Um, I think it's accelerating. I don't think there's resistance from the profession. The question do, is, does it re, does it lower billable hours? And that, as you know, is not something that would be immediately embraced by anybody with three well, children. Well, let's come to that in a minute, because I wanted to hit on some right. trend, Rob, just on a point you just made uh, in terms of right. acceptance. You know, we're really seeing three main areas in this, uh, beyond the short term. I think initially, as you pointed out earlier on, uh, with the tsunami effect, everybody was worried about how do we get our work done day to day? Uh, and there was a focus on that and, and thus some of the workflow and collaboration tools that I was talking about. But I think as we've moved on to the point of efficiency, uh, as you've mentioned it before, we're seeing three trends uh, kind of come up right now. I think first and foremost, in these uncertain times, budgets are certainly under uh, more pressure than uh, in fact they were uh, previously. So there's additional pressure there for efficiency. Uh, at the same time, I think what we're also seeing is we're seeing people with some time on their hands now. Uh, and some people have time to explore different ways of doing things that perhaps they didn't have during their uh, you know, pre-COVID environment. And then lastly, uh, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of lawyers that have been forced to use technology for the reasons that at, at the start of this conversation, and they've seen that it's worked. Uh, and so there's some trust that has evolved in terms of now being more open to, to looking at ways of using technology. So I think all these factors are coming together. I think we're going to see a continued uh, a, a continued pressure and importance of looking at efficiency in addition to some of the other uh, elements that we're talking about and, uh, and more to come there. But I do want to come back, Rob, to resistance, uh, another common trend uh, amongst an industry that is not known for 
generally speaking, being uh, very quick to adopt new ways of doing things. So let's talk about that a minute. And you just mentioned the elephant in the room because that does come up uh, at times, which is often when you talk about efficiency, there are some that hear that as fewer billable hours or negatively impacting the modern trend for billing within the legal industry. So share some thoughts. I have a few as well, but uh, I'd love some thoughts from you on that front, Rob. We'll share, we'll, we'll do it as a dialogue. I mean, if a technology is able to lower billable hours, you have to go with it because your client, commercial or individual, will say, why, why aren't you using this better, cheaper method? So if it does, it shouldn't do, it should give good lawyers the opportunity to do um, what they came into the law to do, which is creative and innovative thinking and putting deals together and helping clients and so on. They didn't come into it to be shown a room full of documents and be told, find the misrepresentation in that. Um, so this should empower them. And I think we'll go back. When I came to the bar, there was an F.E. Smith aphorism in those days that the bar, the bar was a profession of 1,500 people with work for a thousand people, which was being done by 500 people. And that is the model that we'll move back to. The cream will get a chance to flow to the top. Uh, some of the others will be overtaken by technology, but it will increase the reach of the profession. At the moment, you can criticize the legal profession on grounds of lack of reach. It serves some very well, but there are whole parts of society which it doesn't reach at all. And um, the old joke that justice, like the Ritz Hotel, is open to everybody um, is still true. And the more money you have, the better the experience is. If we have this tool, we'll be able to increase the reach of the rule of law, the legal profession, the advice we can give to classes and sections of society who don't at the present uh, use it because they think it's too expensive and too uncertain. It's also building trust now because no leap of faith is needed. This, these machines show you everything. So you don't, I used to walk into cases sometimes as a QC and think, well, I wonder if I'm in the right case. Have I, have I missed the point here? This should eradicate that because it's all before you. So I think resistance, I was going to say resistance is futile and a hark back to another generation. But um, I think resistance is futile. Yeah, I think I think at, at a minimum it's 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 short term or, or you know short sighted uh, to, to say the least. I, I would say just to expand upon a couple of the points that you made, Rob, uh, with uh, expansion. I mean, even beyond expanding the reach of the legal system to others, uh, I think we come across a lot of clients that view this as a zero sum game and feel that. Uh, if you're taking away hours, you know, there's less billing, it, it, it's, uh, it balances out. But we, in fact, think it's, it's a growth industry legal, right? I mean, if we look across, uh, one of the things you talked about earlier was compromise, and that has become uh, an underlying facet of the industry today in terms of sampling, uh, raising materiality thresholds and deals. I mean, these are how a lot of corporate deals get done. And we're seeing many clients use efficiency to expand that, right? To review more, uh, lower those materiality thresholds, increase the quality of the legal advice being uh, provided to clients. And so from our perspective, it's it, there is a backlog of additional work with efficiency that could be made available. So, so that's one point. 
I think we also look at the importance today of recruiting and retaining the best talent. Uh, we see these tools as being very effective uh, on that front. We talk a lot at Luminance about allowing lawyers to be lawyers. Um, you know, when I, when we all went to law school, we didn't go there to come out uh, performing administrative tasks, right? We wanted to get into the meat of it, perform high value added tasks for our clients. And um, these tools definitely uh, allow us to get away from the uh, the day-to-day -day administrative. And then the last point you made, I will, uh, everybody's sick of hearing me talk about it, but but I agree completely, which is when you look at a lot of the legacy tools that were more output-based, uh, Luminance takes a totally different approach. And lawyers accept, use, and adopt technology at very different paces. Um, some are much more comfortable than others. And when you have a tool that allows you to work within the documents and perform QC, QC and QA, search across the document set, look for irregularities. It just allows you to, to kind of grow and gain confidence in that platform much more quickly uh, and result increased adoption. So uh, well well said there, Rob. All right, I wanna push us because we're, we're moving here on time. Uh, I'm gonna skip some of these other questions I had. Um, You've mentioned some of this, but let's just be forward thinking with our last few minutes before we turn to Q&A, Rob. You've kind of talked about uh, a number of the different factors where technology could help. When you look at machine learning or even technology in general, um, what do you see for the future? How do you think this shapes the legal profession in the next year, five years or more? What are some of your thoughts on that? I think it'll have an effect on the size of firms and, as I said before, the way they congregate in single bid off big offices. I think the tech will become completely second nature. We've been having this conversation two years ago. It would have been legitimate for me to say to you, hey, Jason, what's Zoom? Um, how do I work FaceTime? Um, just explain how this search engine works. You'd have thought they were odd questions, but you'd have accepted them as questions. If I asked them now, I think you'd be right to look for another chairman. So I think that's gonna, um, I, I think that it's just gonna become part of what we do. And I'm not sure how you're gonna be able to start a legal case or whatever without it. It's the equivalent in the 1960s to getting into the office and opening the post. You've got to wait and you've got to see what's in there. And this is, I think is gonna do that. So, um, yeah, it's just a case of how we handle it. I don't think it'll shrink the legal profession. It doesn't look as if anything is going to shrink the legal profession. Um, because although uh, in many soap operas we're unpopular, people uh, use us all the time and more and more. I think there are something like 130,000 solicitors in uh, England and Wales at the moment, which means you could go to a full Wembley twice and never meet anyone that wasn't a solicitor. You might think that's enough. Um, but no, I think there are going to be more. I think we'll expand our reach, we'll expand our competence, we'll expand our relevance, and we'll expand our attractiveness. We'll be much more accessible. We won't have to go and climb up a large marble staircase and wonder whether we're smart enough to be dressed to get past the reception. I think those days are gone. Thank you, Rob. And uh, you know, from my perspective, flexibility is key, right? I mean, it, what we've seen in this pandemic situation is all of the new use cases that you talked about, people weren't aware that they would become as important as quickly as they did. And uh, having technology that is able to quickly adapt to new and different needs, 
of clients um, as they adapt to the needs of their end clients is uh, is crucial from my perspective. And uh, as as that continues to develop, we will you know continue to see it used. And I think. Obviously, as you pointed out, the inevitable uh, adoption rates across the legal profession adding more and more value. So, uh, well, I'm going to open it up to some group questions, Rob. I think we've we've done a nice section here, but I just want to make sure there wasn't uh, if there was any last points you wanted to make, and if not, I will uh, I will go to the question list. No, I think we're in a very well placed to take advantage of the boom that's coming, and uh, let's see, let's just just hope we're the best product. We think we are, and let's prove it. Excellent. Um, so let me just see some of the questions that have come in. So one is on commercial litigation, Rob, which I know you've you've kind of mentioned in your opening uh, criminal uh, proceedings. What about commercial litigation is the question. Is that also an area that requires some form of authority, or will that be more amenable to remote hearings that's a great question um it'll be uh, machines are all over it because it's document heavy it's all in different languages it's all in different forums it's all in different places collating pulling it together deciding that machines are there already and they're already doing it um when you then get to actual hearings or decisions or contested stuff a lot of the issues are resolvable by a study of and a comprehension of the documents and the answer gives itself up once the documents are properly organized and the facts are properly ascertained so that kind of stuff hearings for directions summonses on discovery identification of relevant material that lends itself to remote working very well if you get to an actual dispute of fact you said you would buy this yacht for 400 million pounds oh no i didn't yes you did we were together at a restaurant and that's what you said and we shook hands on it no we didn't i've never seen you before if you get that sort of issue then i think you have to have some sort of human forum to enable a who's telling the truth decision to be made by a tribunal so all the normal stuff all the stuff with, to which the documents contain the answer remote, remote, remote and thorough. If you get to the distillation of a question which needs oral evidence, then I don't think oral evidence is as good um, remotely as it is um, when you're actually in the witness box cross-examining somebody. But that may be my generation talking. I'm just used to cross-examining as a silk and saying, but surely you can't tell me, Mr. Brennan, that. And uh, if I do it over Zoom, you just say, yes, well, I am telling you, will you ask the next question? Whereas if I'm sort of bristling with personal aggression, it's more difficult for you to evade it. Not that I do bristle with personal aggression. <laughs> well, let me shift a little bit. I think you've answered this one in your opening, but I want to be fair to those that have submitted questions. Do you think the experience of remote working is likely to stay or will lawyers be back in the office soon? Both. I think they'll be back in the office. They like seeing each other. They're by and large extroverts. They enjoy chatting. They enjoy verbal jokes. They enjoy water cooler stuff. And there's also something very softening about personal contact. So if you're talking over something like this, you tend to be much more issue based. I'm not making the number of jokes and asides and things that I'd make if we were just having a conversation, partly because they're fraternity and partly because you don't know who's listening or who might be listening in the future. So you have to be a little bit more guarded. 
Whereas if you're just together, I can come up to you after this and say, hey, Jason, I didn't really mean to say this. What I meant to say was that. And you could say, well, that's all right, Rob. It didn't come across very well, but I think they understood. And you've got all those softening margins, which I think will bring people back together. And also, human beings are gregarious. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many of us as there are. Appreciate it. What about this one, Rob? Uh, this is an interesting question. So uh, apparently you and I both painted quite a positive picture of the legal profession. What are the risks for lawyers right now in this environment? Um, I think that all professionals morph into the same person. So that the accountant, the lawyer, the advisor from Goldman's, the management consultant from Bain, the PR comms person from uh, Brunswick, they all become sort of trusted advisors to the CEO or whatever, and the distinctions between them morph. So that we've already got these huge legal firms in accountants firms and in businesses and other things like that. So you, you ask the question, the question comes across is, what is actually special about the law and the lawyer? because all the law is now available on the LexisNexis and on the, all the other websites. So everybody can find out what the law is and what the cases are in two minutes. Everybody can give advice because um, leadership is difficult and commentary is easy. So um, there are any number of commentators as well. So the threat is, what is your unique selling point? Is it because you used to play golf with somebody who might be a judge in the case? never was the case, but even less so now. Um, is it because you have a very respectable brand and if you get a letter from uh, an American white shoe firm, you think, oh, I better take this seriously because it's come from them. Or is in fact it going to merge into a much more homogenous advisory role in which law is just one of the skills in, in someone's toolkit and a bit less distinguishable? I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm slightly flying a kite there, but I think that's, you know, I think that's a, if you ask what is a risk, the risk is loss of distinction, right. distinctive, distinctiveness. I mean, I'm addressing you without a wig and gown on, which of course I greatly regret. Let's see another point here. Um, I think we've talked about this a little, but it's worth, uh, drawing out a little more. How do you think customer pressure might change given the economic client? So I think there will be pressure. For, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob. I'll expand on this one because we come across this a lot where I think we've seen um, probably an increasing but less pressure from, uh, we've heard this from the firms that there's less pressure from their end clients and in-house on the use of technology um, and the like, although absolutely have seen that increasing. Do you think that pressure changes as a result of this environment? I think there'll always be uh, cost pressures. I mean, they just they just come with the nature of the job. But I think a, a time-based charging model is very much under threat from tech because what you're what you're giving is advice on data that you've already had access to and so on. So I think the um, I think the sort of I spent ten hours on this billing ratio is uh, going to be more difficult, as in typing to to giving due care and attention another 100%. That sort of stuff is going to go under the glare of um, the efficiencies that we're seeing now. 
and kind of so it should. I mean, nobody wants to charge for something that isn't of value, but we've always had a, a slight tendency as a profession to charge on the basis of inputs. I worked hard on this, I did this, we did that, we did the other. That's interesting, but not very. What the client really wants to know is what the output is. And I think we'll move to um, charging on outputs much more than we do already, and, and less to charging on inputs. You've been very generous with your time, Rob. Just maybe a couple more here, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. But there's there's a couple of interesting interesting ones here. So we talked a little bit about the retention uh, of of talent in the industry. Uh, you talked a little bit about differentiation and the difficulty maybe in this environment combined with the increasing use of tech. So how do we wrap some of those threads together, Rob, in terms of what makes a good lawyer in the future? How does all of this change what you might look for uh, for the lawyer of the future? The best lawyers in the world, bar none, are those who take the trouble to find out what the facts are. Because if you actually find out what the facts are, the legal um, part of it very often gives itself up. Given that you've found out the facts and you're working with those, then the next prerequisite is to know what the law actually is in the forum where you're working. Is it America? Is it China? Is it here? And then the third thing is building the confidence and trust of the client to give you the authority to do what needs to be done. So I think it's facts, law and confidence. And those three things are unchanging and one of the reasons that trials can be a bit unsatisfactory is that they are um they're all archaeology the uh, events have already occurred so they're a form of oral archaeology but they're not an oral archaeology which is designed to discover some absolute truth they're designed to surface a version of the facts which suits one side or the other so an accusatorial system like our legal system is isn't best suited to finding out archaeological actual truths. So I come back to, this is gonna make it easier to find out the facts, and the facts are very often the answer to everything. Wonderful. All you right, can well, see why you have to terminate these sessions. I could go on like this forever. I know you could, and, uh, yeah. and so with that, we've been through our 45 minutes here. Um, Rob, uh, really special thank you to you for joining us today. Greatly appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic across the legal profession. Some really great perspectives given your experience and the diversity of the roles that you've held. I want to thank our guests for joining us. I hope you found this to be a useful and valuable session. Please feel free. Um, you know, there were some questions we couldn't answer uh, out of time, but if you've got questions, please feed them through and we will get back to you uh, promptly. And um, please look out for our future thought leadership sessions. It's a really great opportunity to get together with experts in the field, uh, hopefully provide some, some great insights. Please be safe out there. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.